Welcome to the Bible Teachers, featuring sermons from around Australia. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Neil Watts. Do you know Stan Grant? Some of you may have seen Stan Grant. He was a, a uh, TV um, reporter or presenter. He's part uh, Aboriginal, but he's now a, an academic. And he wrote an article for the ABC called Does the Global Terrorism Threat, Rising Inequality and Stagnant Economic Growth Signal the End of Times? And uh, he says, what are our conditions today? What are the, these times we're living in? I'll just read a couple of paragraphs to, just to show you that it's not just us as Seventh-day Adventists who believe that we are living in, in desperate times, in the end times. You're probably all aware of that anyway, that others also hold that view. But this was interesting coming from a man who doesn't profess... Um, to be a practicing Christian. Our headlines are of the war or war or threat of war. Our politics is divided. Inequality is rising. Terrorism is global. The climate is changing. Economic growth is anemic or uncertain. There's suspicion and fear in the air. Demagogues only too willing to exploit it. The bulletin of atomic scientists comprising some of the world's great minds have moved, moved the doomsday clock 30 seconds closer to midnight. I spent much of the year contemplating these, and he says, end times. Just this day, I pulled from my bookshelf a collection of tomes written by respectable, intelligent authors and thinkers, all forecasting doom. And then he goes on another place to say, there are many spot fires that could so easily flare dangerously out of control. North Korea quickly developing the capacity to deliver a nuclear strike on countries as far away as the United States or Australia. South, sea China, uh, South China Sea, the world's most crucial trade route, heavily contested and a potential tinderbox that could pit the world's biggest powers against each other. The consequences of a war of this magnitude are frightening. And then he says, um, a former Defence Force chief, has warned that Australia could be invaded in our lifetimes and may already be too late to avoid it. Others have described our own Asia region as a tinderbox posed and ready to explode. Add to the tripwires of Asia, Middle East conflicts, terrorism, economic uncertainty, a lack of leadership, and the flashpoint appears closer than we might like to imagine. And then I'm skipping over a lot, but that's, that's it. It's just a, an indication of the times we're living in, and I love preaching on the the last days and the signs of Christ's coming and so on. I'm an evangelist in a way. I preach a couple of overseas evangelistic programs every year and I love preaching on that topic. But today I'm going to speak on something that is even more important. You've probably guessed. Just dwell on, on politics, by the way. Um, just before the last American elections, one uh, well-known pastor in America said this to his church. Our hope is not in the man we put in the White House, but in the man we put on the cross. Significant statement, isn't it? We've got to remember that. In all the news about politics, the most important man is the one that we put on the cross. Our scripture reading revealed something about the cross and how it was seen as a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. Why was that? Well, to the Jews, first of all, it was incredible to them that a man who would die on a cross could be the Messiah. Now, I think we noted in, was it last week or the week before Sabbath school lesson, the fact that um, it was this curse given. He who is hanged on a tree is cursed of God. And that's quoted by uh, Stephen and also Peter and Paul in the New Testament. 
the cross appeared to them to disprove the very fact that he was a Messiah. How could this happen to him? Uh, That Jesus would be the son of God. Strange but true, even with Isaiah 53 before their eyes, talking of the suffering servant and all that was going to happen to him. They didn't dream of a Messiah actually coming like that. So the cross to them was a stumbling block. It also says there in 1 Corinthians 1 that the Jews sought for signs. They looked for something shattering, something out of this world that would accompany the golden age of the Messiah. Now, I would have thought that raising the dead and, and feeding 5,000 people and things like that was enough to be a, a decent sign, wouldn't you? But they were looking for something a bit more, I don't know what, spectacular to their way of thinking of what should the Messiah should have been like. And in 45 AD, a man called Thutis came down from Egypt. He came across and he claimed to be the Messiah. And he called thousands of people to follow him down to the River Jordan, where he said, when I raise my hands and drop my arm, the, rivers of the, the waters of the River Jordan will divide and we'll walk safely across to the other side. I don't know why they couldn't have just got in a boat, but they wanted to, he wanted to show this spectacular sign. And then nine years later, in 54 AD, another man came along and he persuaded 30,000 people to come with up, him up onto the Mount of Olives. And he said, when I raise my hand, the walls of Jerusalem will fall flat. Well, of course, he, they were not uh, true prophets and it didn't happen. But somehow that was a kind of thing that uh, the Jews were looking for. And for them to see a a meek and lowly Jesus who avoided the spectacular and who finally died on a cross, that didn't fit the picture they had. And so to the Jews, the cross was a stumbling block. What about the Greeks? It says, to them the message was foolishness. Well, they argued that God couldn't feel. He's a spirit, not not a body, and he can't feel things and he can't feel emotions. Um, He can't be affected by joy or sorrow or grief. Certainly can't shed tears. For God to suffer to them was just uh, unbelievable. And uh, so the whole idea of the incarnation of God becoming a man and living like us and, and, and having to put up with the things that we put up and get hungry and so forth was just impossible to them. So you can see why that with people who thought like that, the message of the cross would on all accounts seemed pretty doomed. One who had suffered as Jesus had suffered could be the son of God. But despite all of that, the preaching of the cross turned the world upside down. The preaching of the cross was something that by the end of the first century, we believe, had affected millions of people. A couple of million people had become Christians within that 70-year period. So why is the cross so important? Why is it said to be the heart of the gospel? Why should we as Seventh-day Adventists with our end-time message and the three angels' messages and and all that sort of thing and Babylon has fallen and Christ is coming soon, why should we have to talk much about the cross? Surely we we know all about that. Why does Ellen White say it should be the centre of all of our preaching and teaching? So what does the cross teach us? What does it demand of us? And a lot of what we're going to say is is old hat to us. We know it all. But I just want to give seven reasons or seven truths, I believe, that are revealed by the cross. And if we can see if this will actually work, there it is, the first one. The cross reveals the true nature of sin. Now, the, the concept of sin is pretty unpopular today, isn't it? 
People don't like to think of sin. Who, who says it's sin? Um, you know, it's your opinion against mine. And, um, of course, with the evolutionary theory, it's only the, the remnant nature or remnants of, a, of an animal nature that we, we all have. So that's one side of it. Uh, others, of course, who believe in sin say, well, it's not a big thing, especially if it's only a white lie. You know, there's little sins and big sins, so you don't have to get too upset about it, especially if it doesn't really hurt anyone. That's the kind of mood of many people who would even accept the concept of sin. But, friends, sin is what crucified the Saviour, isn't that right? And when you think of the suffering that Jesus went through, here's the king of the universe coming down and living like a man, not giving the honour of a, of a king, but as a servant, and then treated like an animal, treated like a criminal. That's what the cross did to Jesus. And that's what our sin does to him. And I want to challenge you, friends, that every time you're tempted to sin, every time Satan comes along and says, oh, don't worry, you can get down on your knees tonight and you'll ask forgiveness and it'll be okay. And it's true, you can. But every time we sin, we are, as it were, crucifying afresh our Saviour. It was our sin that uh, put Jesus on the cross. God, could God have done some other way? Probably, but he needed to show that that justice and love, mercy and judgment can come together. And that was brought to, to bear through the cross. The cross was the only way. So when we're tempted to sin, let's have a long look at the cross. Some of you may have seen the, the film, um, uh, what was it called? The, the Passion of the Christ. Um, it was accurate in many ways, but I want to point out one thing about it. Um, we often think of of this as Jesus in the crucifixion. He hardly looks, he might have a scratch on the back of his back there, if you can see it, and fairly, uh, fairly whitewashed sort of version. But how it came over in the film was probably more realistic. That's probably what it looked like in reality. That's what our saviour, the king of the universe, went through. This is how he was treated. He could have called 10,000 angels, as the song says, to destroy the world and set him free. But instead, he died for you and me. That's the, that's the real message of the cross. And we, we mustn't forget, I don't want to dwell on those physical things because it wasn't really the physical pain that killed Christ anyway, was it? It was a broken heart. It was a heart that would bore all the sins of the world from Adam and Eve right down to the end of time. God was allergic to sin, and yet Christ took it on himself, bore the brunt of all that horror that even turned his father's face away from him. And he cried out on the cross, why have you forsaken me? He was prepared to go through that experience, not knowing for sure in his humanity whether he'd even come out the other side. And he went through that darkness, still willing to give it all up for us. How can we but want to serve a God like that? The true condition of human nature is the second truth that comes out of the cross. You know, um, we don't need to talk much about the evolutionary theory, but when you can compare that with the fall, you know, the evolutionists believe, of course, that uh, we are progressing upward and onward. We started as something, almost nothing, and we've grown and grown, and we're getting better and better. And one day we'll reach that stage where we, uh, we are all living wonderfully and happily and no problems. But the reality is we have sunk so low, we start off good as you know we sunk so low that we would even not personally but 
in, in, as part of humanity, we have crucified our own creator. And who knows what we would have done if we were standing there with them. We can't save ourselves. And this is, of course, contrary to most human thinking. It's been said that the first part of the good news is a bad news of ourselves. And the only hope we have of being able to save ourselves is through accepting the wonderful gift of Jesus. Doing, him doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. And I love the words of that hymn, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. That was even brought out in a sense in our lesson this week, that the law cannot save us, but it can point to the holiness of God and our sinfulness, can show us what we are really like, and that the only way we can be saved is by accepting by faith the wonderful gift of Jesus. Ellen White actually said, Christ on the cross is the gospel. It's uh, quoted in six Bible commentaries, 11.13, if you want to get the reference. The third um, thing that the cross reveals to me is a substitutionary sacrifice, the death of God taking our place in death. Some of these kind of overlap a little bit, but... um, I still want to bring them out to us. What does it say in 2 Corinthians 5.21? He who made him, sorry, for he made him who knew no, no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Since uh, the Garden of Eden, people knew about this kind of substitutionary plan where God himself would provide the substitute, the, the one who would die for, for our sins as it were. I'm glad that God has a different method of bookkeeping than we have, aren't you? You see, if if someone owes us a debt, we've got to somehow pay it back. But when we have a debt against God, he's willing to to wipe it off. He's willing to take it himself, to pay it himself. That's the reality of God's kind of, of, uh, of accounting. He took our sins, we know this quote, in which he had no share, that we might have his righteousness in which we had no share. He took our place. He became sin for us. You remember that serpent story in, uh, the, in uh, the book of Exodus where the people were sinned against God. They were bitten by snakes and God told Moses, put the serpent on this rod and hold it up and those who look at it will live. And Jesus said uh, that I, when I am lifted up, will draw all men to myself. He's referring to that story. Why a serpent on the, on the stick? Serpents are a symbol of sin, isn't it? Something that is hateful. And yet it was looking at that serpent. Why? I believe because Jesus became sin for us. Isn't that right? He he became the embodiment of sin. Sin wasn't something that was just placed on his head just for a little while. He He took the whole sin upon himself. He became, as it were, in the eyes of heaven, sin embodied. Hard for us to imagine the king of the universe could be seen like that. The cross reveals this wonderful plan where Jesus changed places with us and died for our sins. That's a unique feature of Christianity. There's no other religion in the world that has that aspect of the God, our creator, who would take our place and pay for our sins. No wonder so much has been written and sung about the the cross. The fourth thing that the cross reveals is the incredible accepting love of God. We all know John 3.16, but... um, We're told that while we are sinners, Christ died for us. 
Some might think they'd die for their friends, but Christ died for his enemies and he prayed for them, as you know, on the cross. Father, forgive them. Those guys that have just whipped me and those that have put those nails through my hands and, and my, my feet and, and uh, treated me like this, forgive them. That's the kind of love. doesn't matter how bad a sinner you've been, friends. I get this from the, the lesson of, of the cross. It doesn't matter what you've done to your Lord even. He's praying for you. You ever thought of that? When you feel guilty, do you understand and realise that Jesus is praying for you? He's pleading for you? He will forgive you, not only forgive you, but he'll count you as part of his family and rejoice over you. Do you remember the stories in Luke 15? You do remember them. Those three parables there about the lost sheep and the lost coin and then the lost son. What happens in the, at each of the end of those? Or what happens, first of all, to the, to, the, to the person who's lost the thing? What do they do? They go out searching. And they leave the others behind and go out searching. But at the, each of, at the end of each one of those stories, there's, there's rejoicing. There's a party, isn't there? The man who lost the sheep, he calls his friends, have a party. The woman who lost the coin calls her friends, they have a party and rejoice. And when the father whose son was lost comes back, he calls a party. And Jesus went on to say, in heaven all the angels rejoice over one sinner who repents. The wonderful accepting love of God. No wonder John said in 1 John 3, 1, Behold, what manner of love. He can't put words to it. What manner of love that the Father has bestowed upon us that we, in all of our sinfulness, should be called children of God. The fifth one, the cross reveals the infinite value of a soul. He says, I've called you by name. You are mine. You know, we live in a world of teeming millions. Some of you have been to some of these places. I have. I remember going to Sao Paulo in Brazil 20 million people in that place. Um, other cities, 12 million, 15 million. And you see the crowds of people. It's just unbelievable. And it's easy for a person to feel insignificant and worthless and lonely. But the cross reveals that every person in God's eyes is equal and equally loved. Hard to imagine. I remember hearing the story from Paul, or of Paul Tournier, a Christian physician in Africa many years ago. And uh, <clears throat> he was telling a story about a, a couple, married couple who were having some financial difficulties and they were arguing. Probably many of us have argued over money at some stage, but they were arguing over the table at night, thinking their children were in bed. And um, a little, the little youngest daughter was listening around the corner. And then as they got arguing about this money and how are we going to make uh, things meet, uh, bills you know, paid for and how are we going to make ends meet, the father in frustration said, we could have done without our last one. Wow. Can you imagine how the little one felt? Friends, that is one thing never, never would God say. He would never say that. I could have done without that last one. Even the, uh, the beggar on the street, he's special to God. Millions will pass by every day, hardly noticing him, giving him any, any thought at all, but God notices. That's the incredible love of God. That's how valuable we are, we are to him. Jesus would have died for that one person that you see on the screen. 
No matter who we are, we are special to God. The cross, as uh, Tony Campolo has famously said, puts God's price tag on every one of us. And God's price tag is the cross. We are worth the infinite son of God. Therefore, we should be willing also to sacrifice ourselves and treat others just as much in a loving way as God would treat them. Well, we could say more on that, but let's go to the sixth one. The cross reveals Christ's triumph over sin, Satan and death. This is the one I I really get excited about because uh, it reminds us that we have a hope that we are on the winning side, that things are going to look up, that there is a future to look forward to. John 12, 31, 32. Now is the judgment of this world. Now is the prince of this world cast out. And in Revelation 12, now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and of the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren, that should be, sorry, accuser of our brethren is cast down and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. So Jesus has defeated Satan and his power. He's overcome. And if Christ be for us, how does it go? Who can be against us? We shouldn't be depressed or discouraged as Christians when the world around us seems to be turning away and, and, and it's getting harder and harder as we look to the future. We know what's going to happen. But if Christ be for us, who can be against us? Well, we may get some troubles, yes. We may, we may even get persecuted. But if Christ be for us, who can really be against us? We don't have to be trembling, weak-kneed Christians, embarrassed about our faith and our trust in God. We don't have to feel insecure or insignificant or, or um, less than other people because we have a faith in Jesus. Jesus said the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. I used to think of that as a picture of the, of the um, you know, forces of hell outside our city and we're surrounded as a little company and they're trying to push their way in, but the, the gates will hold. But in reality, it's talking the opposite. The gates of hell will not prevail against us pushing that out through the power of God. We are going to be the winners in the end. And we need to remember that when we sometimes uh, get discouraged. Jesus has removed the sting of death. No longer do we need to fear death or the grave. Jesus has paid the price. He's risen. And it brings assurance to those who believe in him that no matter what their life has been or whatever sins they've committed, they can have passed from life, uh, death into life and need not be afraid of death. You know, as Christians, we have no reason to lack hope, do we? We have all the reason in the world. Christ has shown us that. Um, we ought to be joyful. We ought to be uh, bold. We ought to endure. We ought to not be like those without hope, as Paul says, but we ought to live on the other side of the resurrection. Well, it's a, there's a wonderful assurance of knowing that Jesus has died for us. I'm sure each one of you could give a personal testimony. We don't have to fear death when we know Jesus. Coincidentally, it's, many of you know that I had a fairly dramatic experience some years ago in a plane crash in Vanuatu in the middle of the night and had to swim for six and a half hours to get to shore and you know that. In fact, incidentally, last night my wife called me in and she was looking at Hope Channel and again, Gary Kent's interview on this, which was done some years ago, 
It's been shown many, many times. I must be running out of things to, to show over the three ABN five fellows. You must uh, give them some more information and more um, material. But anyway, it happened to be on last night. But it just reminded me again of, of that experience where I thought I was going to definitely die. I'd given up hope. I'd been swimming for four and a half, year, uh, four and a half years. <laughs> wow. That would have been a miracle, wouldn't it? Four and a half hours and I was exhausted. I'd swallowed so much salt water. I was aching all over and I just couldn't keep going. And I, I was just, just about to give up and, and drown. And God's, God saved me, showed a miraculous sign, a little one and only star that appeared that night right above me. But that's another story. But I, I, I was so impressed the fact that I wasn't afraid to die. All my sins didn't come back rushing on me and thinking how terrible I've been because I am a great sinner. But I was able to have that assurance that the next thing I would know if I drowned, I didn't like the thought of drowning, but whatever happened, the next thing I knew, I would know it would be the coming of Jesus. Isn't that a wonderful assurance? And friends, if there's someone at all here today who doesn't have that assurance, you need to, you need to get it. It's not hard. You just need to surrender your life to Jesus. Accept what he says. Believe in me and you've passed from death into life. You shall not come into condemnation, but you will be raised at the last day. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. I would a foretaste of glory divine. We don't have to fear death. The last point, probably a bit longer than some of the others, but we'll finish on this number seven. The cross reveals the cost of following God and a call to take up our cross daily. Jesus said, he who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. In uh, Luke 9, you remember this statement, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words of him, the son of man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his father's and of the holy angels. Most of us are by nature self-indulgent. And um, lacking self-control, perhaps we're self-centred. We love our comforts, don't we? I do. I love comforts of home. I'm so glad I live where I live and not in some other part of the world, which uh, is, uh, yeah, a terrible thing to contemplate sometimes. But I am so, I'm self-indulgent. And I think most of us are to some extent. But Christ said to follow him means to be willing to give up our own comforts be willing to give up the things that we love, to uh, be willing to follow him, even to death if necessary. Maybe that won't uh, be necessary for for most of us, but we need to be willing to. There's nothing self-indulgent about being a Christian. And I've often said to, to young people, said, if you want a real challenge in life, then the biggest challenge you can you can accept is this one. Take up your cross and follow Jesus wherever he leads you. Whether that's called to be a missionary or called to be a nurse or called to be something else or to just to go wherever he wants you to be, go and, and be whatever he wants you to be. That's the biggest challenge. Take up your cross daily and follow him. We all need to be, accept that challenge if we want to make our mark on the world. The disciples had probably seen people 
who had uh, taken up the cross literally. It wasn't a, uh, an uncommon thing in those days with Roman rule. They knew what it meant. They knew that taking up your cross was a one-way journey. You didn't come back from that. There's no way out of that. It meant uh, being willing to suffer. And in, in the Christian sense, as Christ is talking here, it means to be willing to suffer for Christ's sake, a martyr's death. It means to be willing to bear the mockery and the shame and the pain and the insult, to be whipped, to be beaten, not to press your rights and, and uh, demand that you be treated special. It means to be willing to suffer whatever it takes to follow Jesus and to show your love for him. He's asking as to bear our back to the whip, to turn your other cheek, to be falsely accused, to be mocked, derided, bruised, broken, nailed to a cross and be buried, if that what, that's what it takes to love him and to serve him. It wasn't easy to be a Christian in the first century, as you all realise, um, just as it isn't easy today. You know, the fate of the disciples, most of them were beaten or thrown to lions or had their heads cut off or disinherited, divorced, whatever it was. People in those days had to suffer for their faith. I remember um, reading a, a comment by Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, who was uh, told of him talking to a young man who was battling about giving his heart to Jesus. And he said, if I do that, I'll lose my job. And he said, I've got to live, don't I? And Tertullian said to him, looked at him in the eye and said, do you? Do you have to live? <laughs> Very deep thought when you think about it. Um, becoming a Christian often meant that uh, a person did have to lose their job or to give up family ties or be disinherited or even thrown to the lions. Domitilla and Flavius Clemens were uh, related to the um, Emperor Domitian. Uh, Domitilla was the, the niece of uh, the emperor and uh, Flavius was the uh, husband, her husband. But uh, when she became a Christian, or they both became Christians, uh, she was uh, disinherited, they were exiled and uh, finally killed, even though they were related to the emperor. That's the sort of thing that was going on at that stage. Even in our day, in recent times, there's been persecution for following Jesus. There still is today. There are thousands and thousands of people suffering today, many in prison and in places in the world where you cannot openly be a Christian. There are people like that. Some of you may remember the um, old book printed years ago, Tortured for Christ by Richard Wormbrand. Any of you remember that book? A couple of you do, yeah. Well, there's another book that his wife, um, Sabrina Wormbrand, uh, wrote called The Pastor's Wife. And she tells the story of being in a, a women's prison in, in Romania. And um, one of the uh, lines that caught my attention on that when I read it some years ago was, um, it's Saturday, said little St Annie Stanicue. It must be. They're beating the Adventist women again. Here they were, the Adventist women, week after week on Sabbath, would refuse to do the, the hard labour. And they were beaten every week. We too may have to face opposition or tests of our loyalty. We too have to take up our cross and follow Jesus. Rudyard Kipling uh, once um, expressed to General Booth, who was the founder of the Salvation Army, you're probably aware, he said, um, I strongly disapprove of this tambourine-waving antics of you Salvation Army people. And a young uh, Booth said to a young man, he said, 
if I had to uh, stand on my feet, and uh, stand on my hands rather, and, and wave the tambourine with my feet or whatever, just to serve Christ, I'd be willing to do it. He didn't care what people thought about him being a follower of Jesus. The real enthusiast doesn't care if others think he's a fool, and so it should be with us. The cross reveals a call to real discipleship. So what have we seen today? We've seen some of the tremendous implications of the cross. It reveals all of our sinfulness and all its stark reality and ugliness, but also God's wonderful power and love in all its wonder and beauty. It's a look at the cross that will subdue our hearts and soften them. It's a look at the cross that will give us victory over wrong habits and a hatred for sin. It's a look at the cross that will give us enthusiasm for witnessing and sharing our faith and going out and doing something for him to preach the three angels' messages. It will give us a desire to prepare for the second advent. It's a look at the cross because we're not saved or we're not motivated really by fear or or by judgment. We are motivated most by love and the love and the gratitude that comes from what Jesus has done in that old, old story of the cross. As the Apostle Paul said, He was not ashamed of the cross and of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. My wife and I have... um, Yeah, sorry, there's where it is there. Uh, My wife and I have a couple of times been to to Rome, and no, I haven't had an audience with the Pope, in case you're worried. Um, But we we were looking... Both the times we went, uh, we were looking for an inscription, which you may have heard of... um, but we couldn't find it. But the second time we went, we were able to discover where it was. It was in the, uh, on the Palatine Hill. This is where the emperor used to live. And underneath, as you'll see at the bottom there, were rooms and things that, and passageways that went under the, um, under the, uh, the palace. And uh, we're looking for an inscription of a young, ma- young man. And archaeologists, as they were some years ago now, uh, digging away there and getting the dust off the walls and so forth, they came across this inscription and that's how it was written and uh, to be interpreted it says Aleximenos worships his god written in the second century this was a story of a young man a a young page boy who obviously was working there for the the emperor possibly as a slave or whatever we're not sure but uh, he was a, a christian he had followed christ but his friends around him weren't and didn't appreciate that. To them, the cross was foolishness. And so one of them inscribed this man he's worshipping, this young man he's, he's supposed to be worshipping, this man on a cross, but what's so significant about it? The head, head of a donkey or an ass. That's how they, they, they viewed it. And in my imagination, I imagine this young man being persecuted, having rotten eggs and, and uh, rubber thongs and so forth uh, thrown at him as he knelt down by his bed at night to pray and, and being given all the ridicule you can think of. But he stood, stood up to this. Aleximenos worships his God. Fortunately, some down the, the passage a bit further, they found another inscription. I'm not sure who wrote it, whether it was Aleximenos himself or someone who was moved by him. It says, Aleximenos remained faithful. Isn't a wonderful testimony? Could that, could that be said of us? What a testimony, what a challenge. Dr. Robert George uh, was speaking to a group of uh, pastors in, in America a few years back. He said, my message for you is a sombre one. 
the days of acceptable Christianity are over. It's no longer easy to be a faithful Christian, a faithful witness to the truths of the gospel. The question each of us must face is this, am I ashamed of the cross? And that question opens to others, am I willing to pay the price that will be demanded if I refuse to be ashamed? Am I willing to give public witness to the massively politically incorrect truths of the gospel? Standing for biblical teaching, specifically teaching about sexuality, marriage and life, is no longer acceptable. And he goes on, They threaten us with consequences if we refuse to call what is good evil and what is evil good. They demand we conform our thinking to their orthodoxy or else say nothing at all. Break the rules and like the beleaguered Christians... We could pay a steep price in our careers, our social standing, our friendship, our fortunes and our futures. Well, friends, what is your reaction to the cross? Are you ashamed of it? Or are you convicted by it? Does it break your heart? Does it warm your heart? Does it stir you? Are you prepared to stand up against opposition to Christ in whatever form it may come within your family or friends, work or at school or wherever? Are you willing to take up your cross, follow Jesus and put him first in your life? This is life's most urgent question. Ellen White said in First Selected Messages 400, I invite you to look to the man of Calvary. Look to him who was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief who was despised and rejected of men. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Look to Calvary until your hearts melt at the amazing love of the Son of God. He left nothing undone that fallen man might be elevated and purified. As Paul says, since we believe that Christ died for everyone, we also believe we have all died to the old life we used to live. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live to please themselves. Instead, they will live to please Christ, who died and was raised for them. So again, I ask, what's your response, friends? Is it, Lord, I thank you for the cross? I thank you for what you've done for me and I want to give my whole life to you. I want to surrender to you. Do whatever you want to do with me, Lord. I'll go wherever you want me to go. I hope that's your response. If it's not, remember the words of Jesus. What does it profit us if we gain the whole world but finish up losing our own soul? Amen. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABN Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 61 4973 3456. Our email address is radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. That is radio at the number 3 ABN Australia, all one word, dot org dot au. Our postal address is 3ABN Australia Inc, PO Box 752, Morissette, New South Wales 2264 Australia. 
Thank you for your prayers and financial support.
ashamed of what I've done, what I've become. These hands are dirty. I dare not lift them up to the Holy One. You plead my cause. You right my wrongs. You break my chains. You overcome. You gave your life to give me mine. That was the Rasmussen family with How Can It Be? Before that, Malita Fong with For God So Loved the World. And coming up next, Charles Hogerbrooks, Nearer, Still Nearer. Nearer, still nearer. 
We hope you enjoy the short presentation on the history of the Reformation from lineagejourney.com. Here in Constance, Germany, a council was convened in the year 1415. Three significant things took place. Firstly, it was called to discuss the schism between the popes. At that time, there wasn't one, nor two, but three rival popes, all declaring themselves to be the true and right pope. This council settled that schism and appointed someone who would rule after those three. It was also here where they declared the writings and John Wycliffe to be a heretic and ordered that his bones be exhumed and burned. It was also at this council where John Huss was ordered to appear to defend his teachings. When Huss left for Constance, he said goodbye to his friends as if he wasn't going to see them again, even though he had a letter of safe passage from the emperor and the pope. Soon after arriving here in Constance, by order of the pope and the cardinals, he was thrust into prison. This building behind me, though today a nice hotel, was one of the places used to imprison John Huss whilst he was here in Constance. The trial of Huss took place here in Constance in the Munster. It is said that he sat on aisle 24. He was asked if he wanted to recant, to which he said he would prefer death over recantation. He was thrown back in prison and brought back here again, and the last time he spoke at the trial, he fixed his eyes on the emperor and said that he had traveled here under his own free will and under the public protection of the emperor sat here. It is said that when everyone's eyes turned on Sigismund, that his face turned crimson red. Sitting here in aisle 24, where Huss sat during his trial, our minds go back to Jerome. When Huss left for Constance, Jerome told him that if he heard of any misfortune, he would come and help right away. Hearing of his imprisonment, he left and traveled down here, but without a safe passage. On arriving in Constance, he realized there was not anything he could do, and so he headed back to Prague, but he was captured on the way and brought back here to Constance. Some people wanted to kill him right away, but they put him in prison where he almost died for lack of food. They wanted to keep him alive. They realized that Huss's death hadn't accomplished very much, and so they wanted Jerome to recant. He was left in prison for about a year in terrible, terrible conditions. Suffering from doubt, he eventually renounced the teachings of Wycliffe, he renounced the teachings of Huss, and pledged to adhere to the Catholic faith. He went back to prison, but the council was not done with him. Either wanting more blood, or wanting a fuller and broader surrender of faith, they called him again, but this time he renounced his former recantation. He asked to address the house, and this was denied, but he remonstrated and was given the opportunity to speak. He stood up and pledged his support of Huss and the influence he had had on his life, and he went on to say, 
of all the sins that I have committed since my youth, none weigh so heavily on my mind and cause me such poignant remorse as that which I committed in this fatal place when I approved of the iniquitous sentence rendered against Wycliffe and against the holy martyr John Huss, my master and my friend. Yes, I confess it from my heart and declare with horror that I disgracefully quailed when through a dread of death I condemned their doctrines. I therefore supplicate Almighty God to pardon me my sins, and this one in particular, the most heinous of all. One thing we learn from the story of Huss and Jerome is that although at the end of his life Jerome fell away, he then came back. Maybe you have fallen away in your walk with the Lord. Maybe you've backslidden. Maybe you've done things that you wish you had never done. Jerome was once strong in his faith and fell away, but at the very end, he came back. There's always time for us to come back to God. If you've fallen down, the most important thing is that you get back up and renew your acquaintance with the Lord. Maybe today, if you've fallen away, you need to renew that acquaintance with God again. To view more episodes in this series on the Reformation, go to lineagejourney.com. It's been our pleasure bringing you this program today here on 3ABN Australia Radio.